I realize after reading that that maybe you kind of jumps in in an awkward place. So we're going to pray and then I'm going to set the stage and then we'll get going, rummaging through these verses together. Sound good? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know it is truth, even if sometimes it seems a little funny, sounds a little funny, phrase is phrase a little weird. But Lord, your word is true. It's perfect. We can bank our entire lives on it. So help us to understand your words today. Help us to know ourselves better. And always, 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 please, Holy Spirit, bring us to Jesus. Bring us to him afresh that we might understand our need and how our Savior, how our Lord meets us in our need. That we might change, that we might believe, that we might repent, that we might obey, that we might look forward to the rest of our lives being lived with you. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might remember that in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, the verse we read today, are one particular section. They all fit together. And you might remember that this is the concept that's being communicated from 118 to 320. And if you've never heard of Christianity before, you're exploring Christianity, here's what the Christian message is, uh, overly simplified, all right? God is right and we are wrong. You will never understand Christianity if you, will not, if you won't accept that. God is right, and we are wrong. So this morning, we're going to continue to think about that. We're going to continue to think about the fact that God is right, and we're wrong. And we're going to take two stops today along that journey. The first stop is this, in understanding that God is right, and we're wrong. Here's stop number one, totally guilty. And here's the second stop, total freedom. Those are the two stops we're making today. Total guilt and total freedom. Make sense? Got me? All right, well, let's jump in. You realize that when you start reading chapter 3, it, it, it's continuing on from chapter 2, obviously. But these verses, the first eight verses of chapter 3, come across as like a footnote a little bit. Remember, the Apostle Paul has been writing to those in chapter 118 through the end of chapter 1. He's writing to those who didn't grow up in a religious, churchy environment. He's writing to those people who are trying to live their lives without God. Remember, this church in Rome is made up of those that have that kind of background and Jewish people that have a super churchy religious background. And you can imagine that those Jewish people in the church in Rome, as they were hearing everything that Paul was saying in chapter 1, were just sitting there thinking to themselves, he is nailing this. All of those people are wrong. And Paul, we couldn't agree with you more. The Jewish people be saying, Paul, we couldn't agree with you more that they are the problem. And if we can just fix them, then the church will be better. Now, here's a little more insight into what's going on in the church in Rome, and this will help you understand this letter. The emperor had kicked out all the Jews from Rome. 
So for a five-year period of time, this church that had gotten started with Jews and Gentiles living together under the gospel, there was a five-year period of time in which the Jews were expelled from Rome. And that meant that the church was made up of primarily Gentile people. But here, as Paul writes this letter, the Jews are actually back in the church at Rome after having been gone for five years. Can you imagine that there might be a little, you know, well, this isn't the way I remember the church. Remember, can you, can you imagine that at all? So here Paul is addressing these groups of people because he's trying to get them to live together again. There'll be more about this in chapter 13 and 14 and 15. But to know that the church is made up of these two groups of people, Paul has to address them both. And so as the Jews were hearing chapter 1 and thinking to themselves, yep, all those Gentiles, they're the problem, Paul turns chapter 2 into focusing on them. He addresses them throughout chapter 2 as if to say, hey, it's really easy to notice all the shortcomings of other people and be blind to your own, right? Anybody relate to that? Anyone find it easy to pick out shortcomings and faults in other people, but have a really hard time being suspicious of yourself or thinking that you might do things wrong yourself? Anybody struggle with that? It's old. It's ancient. People have always struggled with that. So Paul is writing chapter 2 to address the churchy people that have all this religious history. And these first eight verses of chapter 3 are functioned kind of like a footnote. Here's what Paul anticipates coming from them next. Let's cover these quickly. Verses 1 and 2, Paul anticipates that the Jewish people might say, Well, Paul, if I'm a Jew, is, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Because uh, you've been telling us that we're really no different. Is there any advantage at all? And the Apostle Paul says, yes, there is. You have been given things by God. God has given you his word, and that is a real gift, and it is really important. But the fact that you possess the word of God does not mean that you have a righteous standing before God just because you possess the Bible or just because you have been physically circumcised. That doesn't mean that you have a right standing with God. Well, then in verse 3 or 4, he anticipates something else going on in their mind. It's basically this. Well, Paul... As we think back through our history, there were lots of us that were unfaithful. So does our unfaithfulness overpower God's faithfulness? Because he said all these things, and we haven't been the most faithful people, so does our unfaithfulness overpower God's faithfulness? And in verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, no, no, as a matter of fact, God is faithful to unfaithful people. Isn't that a blessing to hear? God is faithful to unfaithful people. That's how faithful God is. That's how committed he is to his mission in the world. If you want to put it in other language, he doesn't take our no for an answer. He continues to pursue. He continues to pour out grace. He continues to come after us in love and through the truth. 
Paul anticipates one more in verses 5 through 8. So, Paul, is there any advantage of being a Jew? We're, we're just no different than anybody else? Yes, but you're not special because of your ethnicity. That doesn't make you right with God. And God is so faithful that he's even faithful to unfaithful people. And then Paul moves to this in 5 through 8. All right, Paul. Well, I like this grace thing. So how about we just sin more so that God's grace can be greater? So if you're saying that God is good and that goodness is seen and that grace is seen in the place of sin, then why don't we just sin more so that God's grace can be bigger? You ever reason that way in your own mind? Just presuming upon the grace of God? I've done that before. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no. If you think that God's grace is there so that we can just do whatever we want and sin however we want and presume upon God's grace all the time, then you really don't understand relationships. Because if you think that someone's unconditional love results in you using that unconditional love to serve yourself, you really don't understand relationships. Even more than that, maybe you've never actually experienced unconditional love. Maybe it hasn't touched you in a deep way because if you genuinely have been affected by unconditional love, you would never think that you should presume upon that. It would humble you to make you realize that the God of the universe loves you for you, not what he can get out of you. And so your relationship to him is thanks and wonder and awe and gratitude because he is so unlike us. Well, Paul moves on from that little footnote in the first eight verses to bring out verses 9 through 20. So we're thinking about total guilt here. And we've seen how our minds can work in the first eight verses and how we can try to weasel around things. And then we come to verse 9 through 20. And, and here, if you're the kind of person that needs it right between the eyes, if you need it right straight to the forehead, here it is in 9 through 20. This is God's indictment on humanity. This is right between the eyes. This is as clear as it gets. This is as bold as it gets. This is as simple, clear as it gets. Look at verse 9 through 20. This is God's indictment on humanity. And by the way, the foundation of verses 9 through 20, you might notice if you have these little notes in your scriptures, it's all quoting the Bible. Psalms, Isaiah, a little bit from the Proverbs. If you want to know what God thinks about humanity, here's what he says. Everyone, everywhere is affected with sin. If you look at verse 9 and verse 19, all are under sin. Did you notice that? All. That's every person. 
That is the person in the womb. That is the person on their deathbed. That is male or female, rich or poor, educated or not. Everyone is under sin. Now look at verse 19 so that you can understand that this total thing is real. God says all of this so that our mouths might be shut and that all the world would be accountable to him. Do you notice that? So God's indictment is that he says in his word that everyone is guilty. There's none that does good. There's none that seek God. There's none that are righteous. Do you hear those words? They're literal. They're plain. If you look back through the text, you'll notice that it refers to our mouth. It it refers to our throat. It refers to the words that come out of our mouths. It refers to the direction and path of our lives that's bent on misery and ruin. It's meant to be every single thing about us. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds are all anti-God. Can you take that in? God is looking at humanity and he's saying, there is none righteous, not one. Maybe we can summarize it this way. There's a phrase in there that says, there is none that seek after God. There's none that seek after God. That, in my mind, is a great summary of all those verses, and here's why. Because I can hear, I, I read that and I start thinking to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are people that seek God. There, there are. But then you start thinking a little bit more deeply and you realize, maybe not. Like I know people that uh, want God to give them blessing. There are people that want God to help them. There are people that are seeking answers from God. In other words, We are always prone to seek things from God, but we don't really seek God. You ever had anybody that just wanted something from you, but wasn't really interested in you? That's what God is saying. There are plenty of people who want things from me, but they really don't want me. They want what I can do for them. You ever find yourself in that area? You ever find yourself living in that way? In which you don't really want God in relationship with him and communion and fellowship with him. You want his things. You see, there are two ways that we can rebel against God. And you've heard these before. One is we can just live our lives in absolute utter disdain of God, and we're living our lives trying to uh, define ourselves, we're trying to make our own rules, and we are just doing everything contrary to what God wants, and we think that we are happy doing it. And the other way that we express our rebellion against God is when we obey for our own selfish motives that we're not obeying because we want God. We obey because we want God's things. Do you remember this story in Luke 15 about the father with the two sons? 
You remember the younger got his inheritance and spent it to satisfy every desire that he wanted and the older stayed at home and he did everything the father wanted him to do and yet inside he was empty because he thought the father owed him for his obedience. Do you ever find yourself thinking that God owes you because of your obedience? Or maybe on the other side thinking that must have deserved this because there's some, some area in my life where I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I want to show you even more how this is still at work in my own life, okay? I want to show you what's going on and what has happened in my life that reveals that I still have a tendency to operate in this way. So many of you know last year I got this horrible diagnosis that I had cancer. And... One of the things that one of the things I needed to do was post surgery uh, and before chemo, um, Jenny and I met with a dietitian because I needed to understand how am I supposed to eat now that and, and how can I be healthy? All these kinds of things. So Jenny and I went to meet with this dietitian and we met with her for almost two hours. And those of you that know me, I took lots of L's that day. All right like massive amount of, of L's talking to this dietitian because I'm the kind of guy that would love to eat cheeseburgers three days a week and pizza four, okay? And that's great. So here I am speaking to the dietitian, asking her question, 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 reading the material that she had sent us. So one of the statements in the material that I received was this, that red meat has been linked to colon cancer. So of course... I'm analyzing this thing like I do all the time, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know why they chose this particular word. They don't want to say too much causality, but there's a connection, perhaps. So that, that sent me on this trail of asking this dietitian, well, can I eat this? Can I eat this? When can I do this? How many times can I do this? And it, was, it went on and on and on and on. And I had to do that until I came to this realization I was going to her to ask her all of these questions so that I could put my faith in the answers that she gave so that I would get a desired outcome. In other words, my faith was in, was outcome-based faith. You get that? And what I had to realize is that I was wanting to know what I needed to do because I want a particular kind of outcome. In other words, again, I had an outcome-based faith, not an open-handed faith. And I want to be clear. I think that I am absolutely responsible to take care of my body. I think that I'm responsible to eat well. I think that I have responsibility to take care of this body that God has given me and to ignore that and just throw it to the wind and say, well, I don't care. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen would not be a good thing to do, okay? So I do think that I'm responsible. I do think that I need to think through what I eat and that matters. But I had to come to the realization that faith is me receiving information making decisions that are wise and responsible and doing that in an open 
handed way. Because at the end of the day, God is sovereign. And I am not in control. Now I ask and tell you all that, I tell you all that to ask, what about you? Do you have outcome-based faith? Where, Where you're thinking, yeah, I'll do this as long as this is the outcome. Do you have that view with your parenting technique? Your parenting method? You have that view with your money? You have that view with your job, your career? You have that view with your friends? You have that view with your relationships? Yeah, you got faith, but it's outcome-determined faith. And then what's going to happen if that's the way that your faith exists? What's going to happen when you don't get the outcome you want? What are you going to do then? Think to yourself, well, you just need to believe harder? You need to be more committed? You see, all this that Paul's talking about, none seek God, it's kind of true. <laughs> and I'm saying that kind of in a sarcastic way. It's true everywhere. It's true in us. It's true in those who follow the Lord Jesus and love him. We got a lot more that needs to change in us. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is God's indictment. There is none who are righteous. There is none who does good. There is none who seek after God. Well, that brings us to total freedom. You might be wondering, well, how in the world are these two things connected? Hang in there. You see, the purpose of God's indictment, again, is in verse 19, that our mouths might be shut, that we might be stopped. One of the ways to freedom in your life, one of the ways to freedom in my life is through silence. It's through just Shutting your mouth. Standing before God, sitting before God, existing before God, and receiving everything that he says about you. That's not easy to do, is it? You see, we all have this warped view of Christianity. At minimum, at minimum, We are very inconsistent in working out what we say we believe, at minimum. But most of us have very warped views of Christianity. Some of those perhaps have even been taught inside the church. And I want to say I'm sorry if you've been taught things that aren't right or good because your life has been formed around something that may may not be true. We have a tendency to think that people are basically good, don't we? We've been taught to think people are basically good. And if they just had the right amount of information and the right amount of pressure was applied, people would make the right decisions. And and more than that, we have been taught to think that this is how Christianity works. That God has an ideal of what's good and I need to receive what is good and do what is good And God lays out what is bad, and I need to avoid what he says is bad. Take it a step further. 
We have a tendency to think that this is how Christianity works. Good people get good things and bad people get bad things. So God's trying to find good people and he's out to punish the bad people. I want to read this to you because I heard this recently and I think it applies right here. Maybe if none of that has hit you yet, maybe this will. I heard this recently. Let me see if I can find it in my notes here. This statement, our obedience to God through good works makes our faith strong, which makes our relationship with God stronger. Have you ever heard something like that before? Our obedience to God through good works makes our faith strong, which makes our relationship with God stronger. And you hear that and you think to yourself, here it is. If I just worked harder and did more, God would love me more. You been under that? You have to try to work your way through that? In other words, just thinking everything is about me. God would love me more if I did more. He would love me more if I was better. And so that turns everything into me and focusing on me. This is all about some deficit motivation. And I hope you remember from James that God wants us to have grace-based motivation. We have all been taught things that aren't right and good and aren't true. As a matter of fact, the message that God is telling us in the gospel is actually very, very different from that view of Christianity, from that message of Christianity, that people are basically good and this is how it works. Good people get good things and bad people get bad things. The real message of God is very different from that. The real message is this, we're bad. We're not basically good, we're bad in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We're bad. And more than that, we will never understand the gospel until we accept that. There is no way that we can understand Jesus and what he has done until we accept God's disapproval of us. We will never understand the gospel until we hear his indictment here in Romans 3 and say, that's me. Until we're able to sit with our mouths shut. Because verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 is really just a form of trying to self-justify. You take a little bit of truth and you start working it around to see how you can make it benefit yourself. And beloved, that only makes things worse. God wants us to shut our mouths and be still before him, to hear what he says about us and to acknowledge that what he says is true. You see, being quiet before God, not trying to justify ourselves, being still before God, not trying to defend ourselves, that is the place where we can find freedom. Can you think of instances in your life in which you've just been stopped, your mouth's been shut? You know, you have these opportunities. Well, at least I think you do. Anybody ever get pulled over by a policeman? There's an opportunity for you to take in the fact that you gotta suck it up and admit that you're wrong. 
There's that moment in which he says to you, you ran a stop sign. And you have to admit that stop sign has been there. And you just decided to run it. He's not looking for you to argue with him. Just accept it. What about, metaphorically speaking, what about when you look up at the scoreboard and at the end, all the numbers are on zero and you notice that your productivity is less than those that you were competing against. Will you take that in and just accept that? Just sit there with your mouth shut saying, inside, I'm not enough. When, when you go to the doctor and he says, you know what, you have cancer. No, I don't. What good would that have done if I did that? You don't know me. We have opportunities all the time when we should just sit and close our mouths. And, and one of the applications is when you have those moments, will you do it? Will you just sit there and be silent? When your loved ones, your kids, your spouse, your friend, your coworkers come to you and say, you said you were going to do this and you did the opposite. Will you just take it? Of course, I'm assuming that it's true, all right? But assuming it's true, will you just be silent? You see, that silence and that acceptance of what God says about you and me, his indictment, is where we find and meet grace. Next week, we're going to look at 21 through 31 of this chapter, and it's all about grace. But I want to tell you a story that can hopefully give you some background to the lead-in, excuse me, give you some background to 21 through 31 next week. You can read about this in the book of Joshua. There was a time when God's people were about to enter the promised land. You remember this? God had made this promise to his people. He brought them out of Egypt through no effort of their own. He brought them out of Egypt, and then he said, go into the land that I've given you. And his people said, no way, they're too big and too strong. So they end up wandering around for 40 years. And then they end up on the banks of the Jordan River. And as God's people are all there ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land, they had a problem. The Jordan was a raging torrent. And there was nothing that they could do to cross the Jordan on their own effort and by their own efforts. And Joshua Joshua was with God's people when he said to them, you know what, y'all need to consecrate yourself for three days. I'm guessing that there was some silence that was going on during those three days in which there was some reflection and thinking back to their rebellion and thinking back to God's faithfulness and thinking back to all that God had told them because here is a moment that generations have been waiting for. And when the day arrived to cross the Jordan, Joshua told the people, hey, don't go into the water first. The ark is going to go into the water first. The ark is going to enter into the Jordan River first. Because that ark 
was a picture and a representation of God's presence. It was in the ark that the law of God was kept. It was in the ark that the mercy seat was there where the blood was sprinkled on it for atonement of their sins. And if you can read this in Joshua 3, it is amazing. Joshua tells all the people, stand back. He actually tells them to move back away from the bank of the Jordan River a half a mile. He wants everyone to stand back because he wants the ark and he knows the ark has to go first. And when the priests take the ark and their heels enter into the water on the banks of the Jordan, God acts and God separates the waters and they cross on dry land. Beloved, do you know why Joshua wanted the people to stand back a half a mile? So they could see that they did nothing. They would sit there in awe of their God who had made promises, who had been faithful when they were unfaithful, who had the power and the wherewithal to bring his people into the land where they belong and to experience his love and experience his provision and experience all that he is for them. Do you know that Jesus is called the mercy seat? It was a picture of the coming of Christ so that as we stand before God and hear his indictment and sit there in silence, we get to watch Jesus accomplish everything for us so that he is the one who sheds his own blood so that we would have forgiveness. He's the one that was perfect and he put that perfection on us. He's the one that endured a horrible death. It was a curse the way that he died because that curse was supposed to come to us. In other words, the indictment that God reads against us and pronounces against us is everything that Jesus has become for us so that we might get to delight in the grace of God so that we might get to rejoice as a people saying, Lord, you're right. We're wrong. And you have done everything for us. And beloved, that is what brings us to the table. That's why we celebrate this meal. You might remember that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And he was with them and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim my death until I return. That means that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ.